Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It's funny how history repeats itself. In the mid-19th century, in part in response to the Great Famine, waves of Irish immigrants came to America, most to New York, to seek a new and better life. Then, as now, questions of immigration, assimilation, and criminal behavior filled the air. The appropriately named Know Nothing Party grew up in opposition to these waves of immigration and filled the political dialogue with fear and hatred. But fortunately, leaders emerged in the Irish community that showed them how to be Americans. One of those was Thomas Francis Marr. He would become not just an Irish hero, but an American hero. My guest, National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize winner Timothy Egan, tells the story of Thomas Francis Marr in his new book, The Immortal Irishman. Tim Egan is a Pulitzer Prize winner, a New York Times columnist, a winner of the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction, and the author of seven previous books. It is my pleasure to welcome Timothy Egan back to this program to talk about the immortal Irishman, the Irish revolutionary who became an American hero. Tim, thanks so much for being here. It's a great pleasure. Tim, first of all, why Thomas Francis Marr? What did he go through? What was it about him that was so remarkable? He was drawn and quartered and helped ultimately lead to a free Ireland after his death that happened. He was shipped to Australia, the penal colony, and escaped and helped the Australians eventually to get their freedom. And he arrives in the United States as a convict, as a fugitive, as someone with a price on his head, wanted by the British Empire. But he shapes history in this country by founding and leading the Irish Brigade into the Civil War. And then we see him here in the American West as the territorial governor of the state of Montana. So in this short life, we see the entire arc of Irish-American history of the whole diaspora of Ireland. And as you said, we also see so many things that have resonance to today, the immigrant experience, because the Irish were the first wave, the idea of what is an American, how do you become American, um, thoughts and hopes of oppressed people who want to be free, the template for apartheid, which is what Ireland was under British rule for so long. So I, I, it's, a, it's a great story, I think, in and of itself, just Mars rip-roaring, adventure-filled life. But it's also, Jeff, one of those stories that I think you can find so many strains in, in current thought. Beyond the, the immigration aspect of it, going back to Ireland, this sense of, of a country and a, of a people that were in such <clears throat> trouble and this need to move somewhere to do something to seek a better life for themselves. I mean, that, that's so much a part of the story today as it was then. Right. And don't forget the reason why they had, because a million Irish died in four years' time, the Great Famine. And we know now from some of the documents that come out, we know now from Tony Blair's apology to the Irish several years ago, that it was official British policy to let the Irish starve, that it wasn't just the potato famine, that grain and cereal and oats and beef and cattle were all shipped out of Ireland at a time when a million people starved to death. So they left because of this genocidal crime of the Great Famine. They left because they, there was something, some life on the other side of the Atlantic. And by the way, they were the first big wave of people from one country to this country in what would become the entire immigrant experience. Italian-Americans, Greek-Americans, well, African-Americans, of course, came in enslaved. It was a different story. Um, but all the waves that came right up to the present day were started by this Irish wave. And in the response to them, you mentioned the Know Nothing Party, you also saw the pushback, the idea that these people couldn't become fully American. 
And that was one of the things that Mar really understood, that, that there was this sense of that if they were going to be here, they needed to become Americans. He understood that, and, and he put his own personal well-being where his mouth was on this issue. You're, you're absolutely right. So I want to paint a picture for you. When the Irish arrived, they teamed into these tenements in New York City and Philadelphia and Boston, and there was almost two million of them who fled the Great Famine. Ireland literally emptied out. And they lived horrible conditions, absolute squalor in these tenements, you know, 10 people to a room, and they filled the jails, and, uh, you know, these terms came into the English language like paddy wagon, which was, you know, (laughs) putting an Irishman in a wagon, hooligan, which was the word for a criminal. These words were invented in response to the, the Irish. And Mars' idea was... They could be American through two things. One is the sacrifice of the Civil War, which we can get to in a minute, that by by giving their blood, they would make them assimilated. But also in the Western episode, when he moves to Montana, he thought in the West, they could get out of the tenements and find a life, find a place where they could have some dignity and some place to build families and futures. And talk a little bit about that. And and this sense of the Civil War is kind of a a testing ground for so many of them. Yeah, it really is. And here's why. So when Frederick Douglass, the ex-slave, went to Ireland at the start of the famine, he was impressed about how non-racist people were. He said, I find myself treated as a man, not as a color. And he was appalled at the condition of the average Irish person. He said they looked like the American slaves. I've never seen degradation of anything except for these poor peasants of Ireland who would under who were then under almost a seven hundredth year of oppressive British rule. But then when the Irish come to America, they're the low rung. They build the sewers. They dig the ditches for the canals. They, you know, cart the manure off into the river. And they're told that if these four million blacks, which is how many slaves we had at the start of the Civil War, are freed, they will take your jobs. So Douglas then says he saw the, the Irish who came to America, some of them become racist. Some of them don't want the slaves to be slaves. And Marr has a choice to make. Which side will you be on? And he ultimately ends up siding with his, his friend, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln names him a general in the Civil War, and he founds the Irish Brigade. They had one of the highest casualty rates of any brigades in all of the Civil War, and they ended up dying to free American blacks. That was a sacrifice they made. But Marr alone through his speeches and through his understanding of what this meant, um, helped to move his people from seeing this as a, as a threat to seeing three blacks as a threat to, to the point where they saw it as something they would, they would die for. How was he able to do that? Was it just through his rhetoric, the force of his personality? How was he able to, to get so many men to make that transition? Yeah, so that's a great question. And again, consider, as I mentioned, that the Irish had one of the highest death rates, up to 50% of the Irish Brigade died of any of the brigades in the Civil War. So they were mowing these people down. Also, 160,000 Irish Americans fought on the Union side of the Civil War, and they were drafting them out of New York City. Why Marr was able to do this is twofold. One is, he his strategy was that he, there was the Know Nothing Party, which had been created in opposition to the Irish. It's the only time in our history, Jeff, where we had a political party created in specific opposition to an ethnic group. They did not want these people to become American. They burned their churches in Philadelphia. They passed laws to make it difficult, if not impossible, for an Irish immigrant to become a citizen. Mara thought 
through the Civil War, through the, the Irish Brigade, they could be, show the other Americans that they were fully American. So that was the first selling point. The second selling point was that when they were done with this, they would go back across the Atlantic and liberate their homeland from the boot heel of England. So it was a sort of a twofold thing. It was Irish nationalism. There was a sense that you can become an American. And only later, only later, after all the losses, did he put it in the context of freeing your fellow man, freeing the slaves of the South. What was his, what was Morris' relationship with Lincoln and how did, the, how did that come to be? Yeah, so remember, most of the Irish immigrants were Democrats. Lincoln was a Republican. So that was a very tough sell. But when the Civil War broke out, Marr instantly, instantly took, well, instantly, I guess it'll take a few weeks, but he, he saw Lincoln's side. He said, look, this is the country that gave us refuge. This is the country that took us in. I myself, I being Marr, am an exile. I have a price on my head. I'm wanted by the British Empire. I'm a convict. I'm a fugitive. Yet he was also the most prominent Irish American of his day. And Lincoln had taken him in. So he said, this alone is worth fighting. They became very close. At a time when Lincoln was very sick and had not seen anyone on his schedule, the official doc record shows he hadn't seen anyone for seven days, he received Thomas Mott. And it was Lincoln who took the very risky move of naming this immigrant a general. Now, this appointment of an Irishman as a general to found his own brigade, the Irish Brigade, was very controversial. The other generals did not like it. They said, these people can't fight. They can barely organize a parade, let alone a brigade. But they proved themselves worthy in battle. So the relationship was one of trust. And also, I have to say this, very brilliant on Lincoln's part. If he could bring the Irish into the side of the Union, um, he could get waves and waves of soldiers, which is what he ended up doing. So it was very, it was calculated on Lincoln's part politically, but also they became very close. How did Lincoln's other generals, people like McClellan and others, take to this? So McClellan was generally good for the Irish, although he wasn't good for the Union Army, because as you know, he never moved his army. And they sat outside of the slaveholders' capital of Richmond for all of the month of June in 1862, when they could have just ended the Civil War then and never moved his army. But generally, McClellan was okay. He said, boy, these people can fight. Robert E. Lee, on the other side, the Confederate general, said the same thing. But Sherman hated the Irish, William Tecumseh Sherman. And they, when they started fighting, even though he admired their bravery and their warrior skills, he thought they were very strange. I mean, they would play their fiddles at night in between battles. They would stage steeplechase races. They would have plays. They had these raucous feasts and these celebrations of obscure saints. Um, and they were Catholics. And again, Catholics still weren't a part of the American mainstream. They were thought to be a, an odd tribe. And so... Sherman, who was a, a, a nemesis of Mars until his death, uh, never got the Irish and didn't like them. Didn't like them at all. Right after the war, McClell—I mean, Mars is tired of all of this. He just wants to get away. What was that all about? Yeah. So remember the sacrifice I mentioned. The Irish Brigade just got slaughtered, and the casualty rates, especially after Gettysburg, they fought in all the major battles: Antietam, Gettysburg. Bull Run, Fredericksburg, which was their absolute low point where they were just mowed down as wave after wave of Irish tried to take this Confederate wall. Marr was destroyed by this. He broke his heart. He just wept after what happened at Fredericksburg because he had personally recruited so many of these people. These people had survived the Great Famine only to die in a slaughter, an industrial slaughter on American fields. And he had to face those widows. 
He had to face those mothers. He had to face all the Irish and say, is this still a worthwhile fight? So he was destroyed by this. And his great dream of having an Irish-American army which would cross the continent, excuse me, cross the ocean and fight for a free Ireland was destroyed. So he reinvents himself in the far west, under the big sky of Montana. He is named as the, eventually, the territorial governor. He goes with the love of his life, this woman named Libby Townsend, and becomes the governor of this wild, wide-open, crazy territory in the far west. And he thinks here in Montana is where the Irish can get out of the tenements and find themselves. And if you'll allow me one indulgence, sure. my great-grandfather was one of the people who came from County Waterford and settled in what they called New Ireland for a while, which was the state of Montana. So I have it in my blood as well, these people who found their way uh, to Montana territory. In many ways, it is such a modern idea, this idea of going west for reinvention. Right. Nobody reinvented himself more than Thomas More. In his short life, he went from the most brilliant orator, arguably, in all of Europe. People said he was the greatest conversationalist they ever were engaged with. His lover at one time was Oscar Wilde's mother, a poetess named Speranza. Um, so he reinvents himself as a sort of a foppish prince of Waterford. Remember, he came from wealth at a time when very few people in Ireland had anything. He reinvents himself as a rebel. Then he reinvents himself, not by design, as a convict. He's sentenced to spend the rest of his life on the island of Tasmania. He escapes, comes to New York City, reinvents himself as an Irish-American savior then becomes a general. What did he know about fighting? He'd never led an army before, but he was brilliant in battle. They were brilliant in battle. And finally, West, where he did think he could build a home and a life. I won't tell you what happens, but it's the greatest mystery in Montana to this day how his life ended. Talk a little bit about what you came to understand as the core motivations for Marr, because on the one hand, he is this zealot-like character in all of these reinventions, but, but it's hard to kind of get to the core of who he was. It really is hard to get to the core of what he was. And I'll tell you, the one thing I, I one conclusion I arrived at, we have people like this that we know throughout history. Marr wanted to change the world. He, and it wasn't just as a kid. He, he was like that when he went to his British school. He got in trouble in a Shakespeare play because he did his Irish brogue while in England and they, the Jesuit priest slapped him on the head. And then when he's banished to Tasmania, he, he would take these long walks alone talking to his dog and saying, thinking, write back these letters saying, I can't affect history. I want to put a dent in history. I want to change the world. Usually that's just a youthful obsession. You hear it from kids, but to his dying day, he fought injustice, and to his dying day, he wanted to put a dent in history. That dent meant dignity for people who never had none. That dent meant people who weren't even allowed to speak their language, to practice their religion. In many ways, they were like the Native Americans of this country who had all their things stripped from them, their rituals. It was a crime at one point in Ireland to play your own sports. Um, that meant trying to bring his people some dignity. And how did he think he could carry that out? Or was that still what was motivating him when he got to Montana? So he thought he could carry it out by establishing, it wasn't really a colony because it was part of the United States. It was a big territory, 10 times the size of Ireland. But he thought if they could get out of these terrible tenements on the East Coast and 
you know, establish this these towns in Ireland, which actually Butte, Montana became the, there was more Gaelic spoken there than any place outside of Dublin, became a real Irish center. So he thought he could establish them anew there. Um, they were clannish. They were uh, not people who were going to have the lone frontier homestead. They wanted to live together. They liked ritual. They liked, you know, big raucous occasions together. So they had to congregate together. Um, also, there was a very active vigilante movement in Montana. And scholars have said it was the greatest, or the greatest, the worst vigilante siege we ever had. 37 people were hanged without any trial at all by the so-called right-thinking citizens of Montana, which were mostly um, Anglo, Protestant, British-loving. Mark ran up against them. That was the last great fight of his life. And how was he perceived back in New York, back in the Irish community there after he, he disappeared? Well, his he fell into disfavor, and I think that's one of the reasons why he fell off the map historically for a while, because he went from, they literally called him the savior. Um, when he landed in New York City in 1852 after escaping from Tasmania, the Irish newspapers, and even the New York Times, said the country was just a buzz that this young hero had landed on their shores having escaped the island penal colony of Tasmania. And they all thought he was going to be the savior. And so, you know, these clubs would spring up all over the East Coast in his honor. They did a song, the Mar Polka, which was played and people danced to. So he was viewed as a savior. His speeches were packed. And then he started the Irish Brigade, and that further enhanced his reputation. But the casualties were so hard that many in the Irish community turned against the war. And the low point of that was, was the draft riots of New York City, when they nearly burned that city down, and most of the looters and draft and rioters were Irish. And they turned against Mark. They slashed and burned his picture. Um, they had suffered such an outrageous casualty rate in the war that they turned against him. So, so he went very quickly from, not very quickly, he went over the course of his life from, this savior to someone who was somewhat in disrepute because he still sided with Lincoln and he got ahead of the other Irish on African-American citizenship. He favored citizenship and most people did not. What surprised you most, Tim, is as you researched this, as you began to understand A, about Marr and B, about the Irish experience in America? Well, and thank you for asking that. Really two things. I mean, the reason I like to time travel, why I like to do history, you know, on the one hand, I do a column for the New York Times, which is great fun. But the other part of my professional life is is going back hundreds of years ago and, and trying to imagine a period. In the Ireland of so many centuries, you see the model for apartheid. You see what happens when an outside nation tries to take everything away from a people. That happened to the Jews, that happened to Africans, and it certainly happened to the Irish. Well, again, they outlawed their language, their religion, their customs and cultures, their songs, everything. They couldn't vote, they couldn't own land, they sent them off as slaves in the Caribbean. So I saw that awful thing. And then in the immigrant experience, which we're going through right now with the presidential campaign, if you take the first speech that Donald Trump gave when he entered the race and he said, these Mexicans, they're rapists, mm -hmm. they're criminals, they don't send their best people. You substitute the word rapist, excuse me, you substitute the word Irish for Mexican and you have the very same speeches that were given in 1850s New York City by the members of the Know Nothing Party. 
Now, did that surprise me? I'll tell you how it surprised me and just how crystal clear the parallel was. How we, we have this strain, this nation of immigrants. Every one of us is an immigrant, except for the native people who are only 1% of the population. A nation of immigrants who still have an anti-immigrant strain. I mean, 35% of the people, according to a Pew survey, think that immigration is a bad thing. So I was really surprised to see how close and how similar that strain of, strain of invective was then and is now. And, and I guess you could say it runs through our history. We never truly got rid of it. And I suppose the upside of that, if there is one, is that just as we survived that experience as a nation and, and certainly other troubling times, it, it's encouraging to think that we'll get through this time in, in the same way. Absolutely right. So I closed the book with President John F. Kennedy, whose fam- family left Ireland because of the Great Famine. They would have starved if they'd stayed there. He returns to Ireland in 18, 1963, just a few short months before he himself is assassinated at roughly the same age as Marr. And he brings with him the Irish Brigade flag. He brings with him the stirring words that Marr himself, he addresses the Irish Parliament the first time. So I wanted. I wanted to end the book on a triumphant note that look what happened to these people who were so disparaged. Here is the American president himself returning triumphant. And I guess, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan has a great line about the Irish. He said, um, to be Irish is to know that the world will always break your heart. And I don't agree with the always part. Uh, To be Irish is to know that the world will break your heart, but it doesn't always. And so you also have the the triumph part of it. So that's, to answer your question, that's what's, I think, um, somewhat soothing to know that, that, you know, the other side, that we usually do work this out. Timothy Egan, the book is The Immortal Irishman, the Irish revolutionary who became an American hero. Tim, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Um, you're a terrific interviewer. I think I appreciate it. <laughs> thank thank you, you, Tim. I appreciate that. Yeah. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 